Hi, I'm John Veely, and this is Immigration uh, Conversations. And today we're talking to Robert Hacker. He is the president of the Sports Lawyers Association um, and an excellent guy. Uh, welcome, Bobby. Well, thank you, John. That Robert Hacker introduction threw me off because you've never called me Robert and I've known you for <laughs> 35 years or so. That's, that's only if, uh, if uh, you owe somebody money, right? Or, uh, <laughs> you know, not to answer the phone if they ask Something for Robert. Like <laughs> well, uh, we wanted to keep it all formal here. Um, and uh, in any case, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what is uh, Sports Lawyers Association? Well, the Sports Lawyers Association, interestingly, it's a national organization. It's actually really an international organization right. of sports lawyers. Uh, started here a little more than 40 years ago. I got involved back in 2020. I was uh, a little bit before uh, 2020. No, that 2000. <laughs> um, I was. I had started working at Fox Sports in 1998, and in the course of a negotiation, a deal, the lawyer on the other side, lawyer agents asked if I had ever heard about the organization, and I said, "No." And he said, "Well, you really should join." So I took his advice. I joined and went to my first conference, and I think much like you, was instantly hooked. Oh, man. Uh, the Sports Lawyers Association, notwithstanding the fact that it's been around for over 40 years, is an organization that is now doing what I'd like to call a refresh or what some of us call SLA 2.0. And part of that is, through our executive director, we were posed a question a year ago, which was, are we an organization that throws a conference that has membership? Are we a membership organization that has to have, have happens to have a conference? Right. It was clear to all of us that we had to be more than just somebody that some organization that puts on a conference. So we started with a new strategic planning effort, and we've come a long way in a little more than a year, really, or just really just a year, into looking at what 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 we are and what we're moving forward to. So. In short, we want to be the preeminent organization of sports lawyers, getting that, we're moving towards that way in a number of ways, which is in addition to the content that was the conference, we now offer regular podcasts. And we've just started a new feature where since podcasts are a static environment, that we want more dynamic opportunities. So we're trying to follow each podcast with what we call a virtual outreach event, a VOE. Yeah. Those are awesome. Which I know you took part in, which gives yeah. the opportunity for the consumers of our content to come into a Zoom room and ask questions about the topic or yeah. share experiences right. and create the collegial environment that we have always sought to develop, I think, successfully mm -hmm. at the SLA. So while many people show up at our annual conference and spend a lot of time making connections, networking, hanging out, et cetera, et cetera, building not just relationships, but friendships, losing the conference forced us to sort of fast track mm -hmm. some of that which we discussed in strategic planning. One of those things was since we couldn't have a conference, but we'd already established a program, we were able to get a bunch of our panels to agree to be recorded for webinars. Mm -hmm. And so the plan now is we'll be releasing probably around mid-June a series of these panels that would have been at the conference for maybe, I think it's about nine hours of CLE will be available. Um, and then what we will do is if you purchase 
that webinar, then you will be invited to a VOE mm -hmm. on those webinars. So normally, as you know, at our conference, when the conference, when the panelists finishes and they walk off, they're swarmed by people who follow them out of the room into the hallway yeah. to continue questions. And that's the nature of this. It's not exclusionary. It's open embracing. Yeah. And since we're presenting topics without that dynamic environment, we figured that it's worked well with the podcasts. We'll then set a schedule of VOEs with our webinar panelists to further engage our audience. So that's Bobby. part of the change in our organization. And again, we have to start realizing that not everybody is the age of the stalwarts in the organization. We've got younger members. Right. And one of the first things I brought up um, that was, you know, everybody said, oh my God, how have we done this? Was to start doing podcasts. And we did our first one at our conference last year. And it's been a slow trickle of getting it established. You know, any system takes a while to get up and running, but now it's going like gangbusters. So we're not just an organization about the various issues and various disciplines and what can be called sports law, but we're about, I think it's best put in, in this, the simplest way I can describe it is we're an organization of lawyers who realize that we're very lucky to practice in this area. For sure. And rather than wrapping our arms around it, saying it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, we are there to tell people, yes, this is a great area of practice. What can we do to help you get a job, focus on what a job might be, think of opportunities, because we're not selfish about it. We embrace and are joyous over the fact that this is the place that we have ended up in our legal careers and realize that if we can help other people achieve what we have achieved in, in working in the space, then that's that's part of our mission too. Really neat. And if I you know pipe in on a couple of things on that that I've really, really enjoyed about it. The first thing I noticed about SLA when when you invited me, which was a classic another example of rugby uh, helping, was I ran into you at the uh, USA Sevens in Vegas. You asked me if I was still practicing immigration law. I said, yeah. And, he invited me out to uh, SLA, and since that time, I've, I've got a uh, you know a wall over here of, of of jerseys of incredible players like Pablo Sandoval, which I remember calling you the day that I landed Pablo as a client, and Houston Oilers, uh, you know, defenseman that was uh, you know set the record for uh, um, the uh, world's uh, fastest uh, slap shot, Sheldon Surrey, uh, Alex Lynn of the uh, now uh, Sacramento. Kings and, and many other first round draft picks, all because of coming to SLA. I, I did get to speak there. I did have those opportunities after, but I really enjoyed the camaraderie. I really enjoyed the culture, uh, hanging out at the, uh, at the bar afterwards, meeting people of all ages. Uh, we, it was always during the playoffs of basketball and sitting there next to, uh, you know, the New York Knicks guy and the Dallas Cowboys guy watching the Thunder um, or some of the best memories I had, and, and uh, the Thunder weren't there, so I was kind of the de facto Thunder guy, although I was just a fan. Um, it was fantastic, and, and I really wanted to, I, I really left that, that VOE last week thinking this is, this is better in some ways, right? I mean, the interaction, um, what I always tried to do as a speaker was try to get the group to interact as much as possible, speak about anything. I remember once, um, one, one year, uh, we 
Cuba had just reopened. I think uh, President Obama was president at that point. Cuba had just reopened, and we we just went from our deal to talk about what do, what do you guys think about Cuba and what would it be like with immigration and sports, and it went into this really interesting discussion about someone else had been on our tour about art and these other things, and we just we just got the whole room speaking. But what I noticed on the VOE, um, although it was about sports and immigration, was how it went to so many different things. We talked about COVID-19 in college football. We talked about back to play. It was just a great interactive session of people that were unified around sports law, um, but maybe not all that interested in the immigration element, but we just had a really good conversation. And I think the cool thing about that group where I've watched so many people um, obtain jobs, I always love Varid Yakovy, your, your friend for, who was at USC at the time, who then went into professional sports basketball, right, where the NBA with the, the Celtics and the Heat, and um, was that she was one of those persons that, that was just such a friendly, intelligent person that eventually she found a great job by being around that. And the great way, reason to hire out of that group or even to come into that group is that you see kind of how sports lawyers interact and it's really really positive for such a dog-eat-dog -dog world that sports law is you know with all the multi you know million dollar contracts that go on and, and all the tenseness of leagues shutting down from time to time the lawyers really get along well and uh and we all have this great unified love of sports and it's just a a lot of fun and and watching what you guys have done with the podcast and boe what a brilliant idea and what a way to make uh, lemonade out of lemons right yeah, no, I think it's just the future, you know, we're making a change. I'm got good support on, we've sort of had our con, you know, historically, as I said, the only content we produced was um, at our annual conference. Right. Came, all the time. You saw the conference, you did what you did at the conference, you got the conference, you left. Yeah. Uh, we started several years ago with our outreach program, which was to sort of, it was the genesis of, I think, where we've come to, which was right. saying, well, we just meet once a year. How about if we have start establishing events in different parts of the country where yeah. people can get together? Yeah. And that program has grown and grown and grown. And when in-person meetings seem to be put on pause for quite some time, right. the virtual outreach event was born. And I think it's probably more successful because, for example, there are interesting topics that outreach captains have set up in New York. Well, I'm not going to fly to New York for an outreach event. Right. But Zoom it. <laughs> I can sit here at the, in my office at my desk right. and go click, and I'm there and, and engaged. So, for example, you know, uh, not just because I'm the president of the association, but I enjoy learning because what's so great about sports law is that it has touch points on virtually every legal discipline. Right. And so I know, I, I would say that, am I the best draftsman in the world? 100% not. Am I one of the better issue spotters? Yeah, I give myself that credit. So for example, when I would get a call from my bosses and they would say, oh yeah, we're doing a game in NFL game in London, my days at Fox, I would say, oh, who's handling the immigration? And they would say, why do we need to worry about immigration? <laughs> but, you know, everybody just thinks it's just producing a game. So there are, you need, as a lawyer, you may not be an expert in things, but you need to know 
that there's an issue. And if you want some guidance, find the experts. If you want some explanation after doing your own research, find the experts. And when you're a member of the SLA, you have every expert across every sports discipline available to you. And you just reach out. And I have found that I can reach out when I was merely just a member of the SLA. This has nothing to do with my, my being president. Right. And I would say, hey, this is, we've met SLA. And almost instantly, people are like, oh, yeah, what can I help you? It's remarkable. It's not territorial. And that's one of the best things about the organization. So for me, I was interested in example, last week you did a really terrific podcast with Allison Rich, who's the president-elect. She'll start her term in a year on immigration. And then we had, which was good. And then I wanted to follow up on the VOE because, you know, it's hard, especially when you take an expert such as yourself in the immigration field and you know, knows every acronym of the growing world of acronyms and right. how they mean and how they've changed. And right. in your particular case, I can only imagine how torturous it is because sitting on the outside, you know, I used to say, oh, well, this is resolvable with an H1 or this is an O1. I mean, it's a basic knowledge and say, am I right? And you would say, well, you're close, but it's more like this or we could do this one. Now, you know, I'm not sure with all the <laughs> dominant political forces in this country, yeah. if even an up-to-date immigration lawyer is really sure what and how to apply for stuff. So it's really important, you know, from a, a more of a business perspective that I held through my, my 18 years at Fox and in my consulting role now is wanting to know about some of the nuance with immigration, which, you know, in the sports world, modernly, it's not homegrown. You look at baseball, you got people from all over the world, Japan, Korea, Venezuela, the Dominican, you know, on and on and on playing baseball. You look at basketball, basketball has got this huge international footprint that it never had. And then you look at sports like tennis and golf, you know, I'm, a, I'm from a country that's now been shut down. I have a contract with the team. I mean, can I sue the government for tortious interference because I can't bring my player into the country? I don't know. Right. But it was great to hear that even people that are in the lion's den, as you are, are asking all the same questions. And again, the most important thing, one of the things they don't teach you in law school mm -hmm. is using your relationships. So you have the ability in your world of immigration lawyers and your world of sports executives to sort of say, is this an issue for you and how are you dealing with it? Or have you had this issue? And it was interesting in the call how there was an immigration lawyer who said he was having this problem and it wasn't going on. And you said, wow, I haven't had that problem yet. But now you said, oh my God, am I now gonna face that problem too? You know, is every examiner gonna have a different set of marching orders depending on the office? I don't know, but I mean, it's all part of the educational, uh, the educational exercise that we lawyers have to take because once you get out of law school and pass the bar exam, you, you haven't even had the tip of the iceberg in what you got to learn to practice. Yeah, I think what we don't learn in law school that I think we now that we have a little gray hair is uh, relationships are critical in mastering something and how to master something, right? And and. Mastering is understanding, as you said, issues 
picking out issues. It's also understanding strategies and, uh, and then how to, how to address a particular issue. And then, then it's understanding knowledge. What, what bit of knowledge, what authority goes to that thing? Um, and then doing enough of it, right? And that's where I think um, where we inherit so many cases, right? Is that people think immigration's a fairly, you know, it's a small piece, right? It's a little visa. It's like getting a driver's license to come into a country, right? And, and the problem is that driver's license is really hard to get. And we're dealing with a, an, an agency that has changed its entire um, philosophy, right? This is what's really interesting. And, and really the architect and a negative architect of that philosophy is Stephen Miller, right? And Stephen Miller's philosophy is to turn off the spigot, that's his term, of foreign labor coming to the United States. And what's really interesting about that is within the group that, that he's part of, it, it requires to turn off the spigot governmental intrusion into how a business makes a decision, right? Which is sort of the polar opposite of how these guys think about most everything. But here they are infusing themselves into decision-making of companies, whether they're professional sports franchises, to hire the best goalie, right? Or to bring in a really good um, scout or, or a CEO or, or a manager or whatever it may be. You know, they're, they're being handcuffed because they can't just pick who they want. Right. And and there are uh, and these decisions are being made uh, in a purposefully frustrated manner. They're taking a very long time. Uh, they're they're coming back with questions that are, that are ridiculous and in answers that can sometimes be negative and a no. And then, you know, I, I just went over a, a, uh, with with our good friend Alex Magleby um, and his and his guys over four different rugby coaches for the New England uh, free Jacks, you know, who would be the best guy. And the reason they brought me into that equation wasn't that I love rugby and I know a, th a thing or two about it, um, but was from an immigration perspective, which one has the least amount of risk in getting hired, right? And it was fascinating which one was the best. You know, it was the one guy that left New Zealand and went over and coached, you know, a smaller country for a while and won a little championship that made himself more visa um, you know, possible than, uh, than the others. Right. And, uh, so it's an interesting, an interesting, uh, equation, um, you know, how, you know, how an agency will, 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 will be involved in, in your hiring and decision-making process. And all that goes back to where I was starting with, um, relationships, um, knowledge and strategy, right. And, and, and each area of practice is so unique and ours changes so much. And that's what, you know, while we're very frustrated, it also weeds out people and also makes you more valuable. So as frustrated as we are, sometimes it reminds us that, uh, that it, it's no easy place to enter in our, in our, in our body of law right now. That's yeah, for sure. No, I, I think in, in your area, you're dealing with uh, having worked in a system that was based on certain policies, goals that were informed by various you know, forces in society, whether they were labor unions or chambers of commerce sure. or yeah. all of those sorts of people and adjustments have been made over time, but it was all part of a broad policy perspective related to growth and development of commerce in the United States. Unfortunately, without getting too political, you were thrown into a knee-jerk reaction, rather existential Mm -hmm. immigration philosophy yeah. that was what's good today I don't care about 
yesterday. I'm not looking forward to tomorrow. What's going to sell papers today, so to speak? Yeah. And it's unfortunate because it undermines not just, let alone it, it, it compromises and makes difficult the work of people in your discipline in immigration, but it messes with people's ability to earn a living. And if you're playing in Europe, an athlete, and you're playing in an elite competition, you know, the goal of athletics, I mean, you and I know that when you're an athlete, your goal is, you know, first you want to, you know, make the team. Then you want to be on the starting team. Right. Then you want to make an all-star team. Then you want to make the next team. Whatever level there is, you're goal-oriented. So it makes you get up and run the extra miles. It makes you get in the gym. It makes you do all the things that, you know, you know, should I sleep another hour? Because I maybe might have been out at last. No, I got to get up. It's time to hit it. You do all of that. And that's sort of all part of the American dream. And when people want to come and exercise and embrace the American dream to have a system that prevents you from achieving the goals you worked for for your whole life seems counterintuitive to everything that's American. That's my my soapbox statement. It's a great soapbox statement. And I love the, the word you said existential in philosophy of immigration, right? Because I think about this a lot. I have a friend, when you ask him how he's doing, uh, he's, he's a doctor. He'll say, uh, uh, you know, just saving lives. And he, he's a, um, you know, he's a, uh, a guy with a uh, walk-in um, general practitioner. I don't know that he's ever saved a life, but, you know, I guess that's what doctors do. And it, and it made me laugh. Um, how to, you know, I have friends that, you know, they have a, they have a catchphrase, right? Like a sitcom or something. When they, when you ask them how they're doing, they got a they got a statement. Two or three guys. So um, you know, when people ask me what what's what's it like to be an immigration attorney? What is an immigration attorney? You know, I could say that we fill out um, forms for disinterested government employees, and and we do. But what we say is we deliver dreams, right? And what I mean by that is we understand that this process that we're taking is somebody's leaving a country. And coming to another country, and you know, I left Oklahoma to go to California. I met you when I did that in 1986. That was a massive undertaking. That was a that was a life changing moment for me, right? I was a young guy. I'm, I'm out on my own. I'm out away from my parents. I had I'd left one college on the way to another, not knowing what I was going to do, and and it, it was enlightening. But I still spoke the same language, right? Going to another country is really really hard, and it's a massive thing to do. And most people are doing that because they have a dream, right? They're not going. They're not buying a pair of shoes from us that if. You know, they wanted an eight and a half and it doesn't fit. So you go back and give them a nine. If we, if we help them accomplish this uh, process, then they get to go into their dream. And one of my favorite stories is the, the great rugby player was Selly right? The greatest guy to ever play sevens rugby. And uh, I got to call him up after his green card was approved. And he said it was the best day of his life. And I said, well, Selly, I know your life. You know, you've, you've won two World Cups as a player. Uh, you won one as a coach. Uh, you were the IRB, International Rugby Board, uh, best player ever in the history of the game. Um, you know, you're in the Hall of Fame. You know, you have a beautiful wife you've been married to forever. you got a bunch of kids. How could this be the best day of your life, right? What a life. And, you know, he had a parade after they won the World Cup. Little Fiji had a parade that he's, you know, shout, he's on a stamp, for Christ's sake, right? And he said, I always dreamed to come to America. And the neat thing was is that, you know this story, that um, the Seahawks were over watching, uh, were in England playing football, and they watched a rugby match, and they said, look, I love the way they tackle, and they called Wasilli up, and he came over, and he taught him how to rugby tackle, and then the Seahawks went and won the Super Bowl with what they called the hot tackle, 
right? And I and 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 Wiseli, who who looks a lot like their quarterback, right? Um, you know, is wearing uh, Russell Wilson's football jersey on the sidelines of every game. He became virtually the mascot of the team, right? And uh, and then I called him up and I, you know, I said, "Man, you live a blessed life." You know, it just always shines on his back. And uh, so, I mean, it's really, you know, really what we do shouldn't be that important. It shouldn't be that hard, but it is hard. And and when people do it, we get way too much value. Um, they and but we appreciate it. Don't get me wrong. I love I love those phone calls. But when when they're denied and we are at an all time high of denials, it is devastating. I mean, people they have to go home with their tail between their legs, and uh, you know, oftentimes they're equally mad at us that they that they are uh, happy with us when they get it, and um and they and it's just a lot different than then the shoes don't fit. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's a thing. But, but philosophically, look at America. Ameri sports is the microcosm of life, isn't it? I mean, it has a start and an end. You have a winner, you have a loser. Well, sports immigration is real, or sports in America is really interesting because, you know, we are the world's best at, at, at a very few sports. Football, because we're the only people that play it. More Canadians probably play rugby than play football, right? But basketball is a worldwide sport, and baseball, you know, there's great baseball players in tiny little islands that come and dominate our sport, but we've become the best place for it, right? We have the great cathedrals um, of, with our stadiums. We've got the great television stuff that you were involved with at Fox, and, and it's just the best place to play, right? This is where you've made it. This is the Broadway, right? It's where the money is, right? But the money wouldn't be here if the presentation wasn't here, right? It's right. fantastic, and it's, but it's not limited to sports. So here we have in our administration right now, making it hard for people to come into our country, the best in the world to come to our country and, and do their thing. And the one that frustrates me the most, because we're about to, to face a really big decision by the president, we think coming up about June 15th. And that is with the H1B visa and the L visa. And the equivalent of the American sports scene in business is our tech world, right? And, oh, yeah. and for the same reasons, the Dominican Republic guys per capita are better baseball players than Americans. Every one of them plays it, by the way, right? We don't all play baseball anymore like when we were kids. Right? None of my kids played baseball. I just, you know, you don't see the parks anymore. But techies in India are the world's most educated mobile workforce, and they, they know how to code, and they know how to build our stuff. And we would much rather have them here, building them on our, our campuses where Americans can have jobs, but we're about to go through something, Bobby, that's really going to shut that down um, unless something happens in the next week. But it's, it looks to be coming like a steamroller. And the impact of shutting down the ability for techies to come into our country, um, you know, it, it's, it's easier to destroy something than to build it. And, you know, that magic well, in, a, in a bottle in Silicon Valley, um, you know, could easily go to Canada or stay in India or go somewhere in Europe, and, and once it's gone, it's hard to recapture, you know? Well, that, that's it. I think, you know, when you have, when you want to be a leader and you want to be the best at something, you know, it's the, everything I do in life has a sports analogy tied to it. <laughs> right, so it's a good thing I became a sports lawyer. Yeah. Um, if I want to have the best team, I want to recruit the best players. Right. And the best players, you know, if I'm building a tech company, you know, I want the most qualified, you know, whatever they are, whether they're coders or 
economic modelers or whatever, people that have had a, you know, great success at that and they're qualified, it doesn't matter to me, you know, would I first like to see in philosophically that every American has a job and there's opportunity for Americans? 100% true. Yeah. But if you don't have somebody capable of doing a job, you got to find that person. Mm -hmm. So in the same token in sports, if I'm building a American football team and the best, you know, I see an athlete that's the fastest person I've ever seen. Do I take a chance on seeing if he convert to playing this crazy American game? I don't know. If I'm an Australian powerhouse and I see these incredibly fast Americans, do I want to see if I can get them to come play for my country? It doesn't matter. Sports is about putting together a best team and winning. Yeah. Now, there's always been barriers in sports that say you can only have so many foreign people because we want to for whatever reason. But that's been a policy for years, and it ebbs and flows because you bring people in. We're in a country as the largest economy in the world where to keep that machine going, you've got to stoke the fire. Yeah. And part of stoking that fire means, you know, getting the best people wherever they are because you don't want to create second best. You want to be the best. And just because somebody was born in, you know, in Mumbai doesn't mean he shouldn't be able to come and sit in Silicon Valley and work. It's just, it's just the wrong philosophy to, you know, it's, it's almost like we're, we're giving in the participation medals, right? Um, you know, forcing our companies to hire people that aren't as good. And the reality is there's just not enough Americans. You look at, you look at the sectors that have the biggest tech. It's a, it's a negative unemployment rate. And the really interesting thing is, even with COVID-19, even with its, we're, we're nearing 20% unemployment, if you're in the tech sector, you can still work because what's happening right now is in the tech sector, you don't have to be in a location like a restaurateur or a baseball player, right? I mean, though, not all industries are the same and you can't go, oh, I was, I was a waitress, so now I'm gonna go build your software. It's not that simple, right? So if you were an American and you got laid off in tech, and, and lots of them have, Right. Lots of them have, there's no doubt. However, they can go to other tech companies. And what's happening is because people are having to redefine what they're doing, like you just talked about, you know, SLA redefined how it disseminated its, its content. Well, other companies are having to innovate on how they produce their goods or services. They're going to sell more online. They're going to do whatever it is. Well, you know who's building that? Tech companies. <laughs> you know, so tech people have jobs and um, this doesn't help them. This is just a political football to basically say, I'm for the American who's unemployed. And these guys that when I throw out this flamboyant and really harsh thing are going to take the side of the foreigners over you. So let, don't let them come in. And, and the, the sad thing about it is how short-sighted it is because one of the things you're gonna do is likely cut down something called optional practical training. This is this either one year or three year visa-free component after you graduate from US university. Right. And one of the things that, that is the unintended circumstance is that um, that uh, American universities are the best universities in the world. Right. While we need more techies and we need more people educated in that they're coming to our universities with their intelligence. Right. And so if you look at U.S. News and World Report last time I looked at the top 10, eight of them are American universities. Only Oxford and Cambridge are in there and they're like six and seven. Right. And then if you go down to the top 25, it's American, American and American. Well, what, with this chilling effect of not letting the OPT, 
and to saying that it's going to be harder for you to get a job if you come to this country in our world, people aren't going to American universities. And you know who pays the most money for their tuition to come to an American university? Those people. The, the foreigners. foreigners. Right. They're not only just out of state, they're out of country. And they have to pay a lot of money and they're still glad to do it. They are doing it. And, and we saw, even before COVID-19, like a 25% decrease in both Chinese and Indians coming in. And now we're going to have a ban on Chinese students coming in. And the Indians are told they don't have OPT, so they can't go in the workforce. So they're just not going to come here. And they're going to go to other universities or going to make their own universities great. Or Canada, who keeps smiling about this. They'll go to Canadian universities, British universities. And so what, that starts to undermine now our university system, right? And, and, you know, the great professors and other people coming here. Why would they come here if the students aren't coming here? So there's a lot of things that, that just don't make a lot of sense for what's a pretty small sliver of the population, of the work population. I can give you a perfect sports analogy to how that can backfire. And that is that most, or a significant percentage of WNBA players play the WNBA season here in the States. Right. And then they head to Europe or China to Russia, play the man. season where they get paid a lot more money. Fortune to play in Russia. I don't even get how that works, but they do. Okay, they so they're getting all this extra money to, to yeah. leave. And the same exact thing when you have talented people and the market is willing to pay they're going to go where the money is now right. you raise a whole other interesting issue that i think the covid 19 situation has brought upon us which is for the first time the tropes about workers and they be in the office and all that stuff out the window right. people have realized that people are just as effective and efficient working from home without increasing the CO2 stress on our environment because all the driving and the commuting. Yeah. Uh, they're just as productive and technology like this, you know, come into my office can be a Zoom. Yeah. And you're getting the work done. So whereas, you know, you're drawing in and it's unfortunate because you may still be able to get the best people but those people are not going to be able to live in our country. They're going to still be living in whatever country they're in and working remotely, which is not by any stretch the same environment. Um, you know, I think we've got, we have to not simply want a solution in any system. You can have a goal, you want to change it, but if you work out the equation and the answer is X, you can't just say, I think it should be Y. Okay. Well, because the equation doesn't work balance that way. Right. So if you want to make changes, you have to figure out what numbers you're changing in the equation that gets to your solution. It seems to me that we have been in a situation over the last three and a half years in the immigration world that it has nothing to do with the equation. It has to do, I don't care if the equation yields X, I, the answer is gonna be Z. Right. And people are saying, well, that's great, but how do you get to Z? It doesn't work out. Look at all of these factors. So I think one of the issues that, and it's not just in immigration, it's in, it's in other areas that touch upon it, that you have to, if you wanna make change, you have to look at every touch point along the way to change and see, you know, you may get halfway through that and go, 
yeah, if we do that, that will completely undermine this entire segment of the economy. And does that really justify, can you balance that against this perceived goal that you want? So, you know, we're in, a, in, an, in an awkward situation and I, you know, the only time I'll ever see this, I feel for the governmental examiners who themselves don't really know how to process applications, whether it's, you know, in intellectual property work or immigration work or in other areas, or even, you know, plan checkers, local plan checkers on building permits and what to do and how to do it because people just wanted to change but never thought about what was the equation that ended up with what our process and our solution had been. I don't know how it sorts out. I don't know how you reconcile it. But, uh, you know, the best we can do as lawyers is, yeah. is argue by analogy. And, and yeah. you made a point that, that I really want to highlight, which is in something I've been working on for a while, and we're getting close, a work. I could show you the stack next to my desk here. <laughs> but I sort of believe that there are three principles that guide, should guide us in life. First, I call no blinders. That means you can't be so laser focused on something that you lose sight of an opportunity on the left or an opportunity on the right. Had you had blinders on when I said, come to the sports lawyers association meeting, you would have gone, I'm not a sports lawyer. Why would I want to go to that? What's the yeah. point? I mean, I'd like hanging out with you, Bobby, but I don't, and then you get there and you realize, holy shit, look at all this. And, you know, four months later, I get this call. Hey, I'm sitting in the player's dressing room at the U.S. Open because somebody saw me at SLA and now I'm here and I'm that's doing true. tennis players. True story. That that's, a that's, that's by not having no blinders on you. You, yeah. you look around. The second was a point you raised up. There are no participation trophies in life. If you want to succeed, you got to work hard. you got to be focused. you got to pay attention. And sometimes you got to roll your sleeves up and get in a fight. Uh, and try to do the right thing. But nobody's going to give you anything. You're never going to achieve anything just because, you know, you happen to be somewhere, done something. It has to do with effort. And third, and I think that's the most important and often lost on people, is to thine old self be true, which is simply you have to be authentic. You have to find your authentic voice. And Sometimes, you know, that authentic voice is, is a principled voice. So I can tell you, for example, last week, I was in a situation looking around the country, looking at what was going on, and I reached out to the executive committee of the SLA, and then I reached out to a mass of the past presidents of the SLA, and I posed them the question, I know we've never made a political statement, but I think it's critical for us as leaders in the sports industry that we make a statement about racism in our country. Right. And everybody was like, absolutely. So with the help of a couple of past presidents, uh, Ken Shropshire and Bob Wallace, we crafted a statement with input from a couple other uh, executive committee and board members. We added to it. Some membership had a couple of thoughts and we created and released a statement because there comes a time where it's not political, it's just doing the right thing. And that was the SLA being authentic. Because if you're going to lead in the sports world, and particularly 
you know, across all of sports, I'm not just talking about the athletes, but I'm talking about executives and lawyers and agents and players association people. You know, there's a huge percentage of those that are people of color, a lot of African-Americans. Right. Um, Africans, not just African-Americans. Right. And you've got all of these people there who are discriminated against from opportunities that we seek to fight to gain for people. And when we came out with our statement, it was a, I thought it was a great day for us because we were authentic in who we were. And not only do we believe in opening our knowledge base to anybody that's interested, but opening our, our base, our information to all peoples of all ilks, the rainbow is fully flowing, is fully shining at the SLA. And, you know, I know that that's why I wanted you on diversity and inclusion for a variety of reasons. You were interested and, you know, you have a unique perspective because, you know, notwithstanding the fact that they're the only true Americans, Native Americans are terribly discriminated against in our country and have the paucity of opportunities probably below any other group in our country. And, you know, it's time that we start addressing those issues. And so sports... You know, shut up and dribble. Sorry, Laura, get out of my world. Um, It's stepping up and saying that, you know, we have a voice, we have a platform, we have an audience. Let's use it to do the right thing because that's how a represent, that's how a democratic republic functions by the voice of its citizenry standing up and letting its opinions known and doing it in, you know, not yelling and screaming, but in a reason approach. Well, I was going to say, Bobby, I, I did love the statement. I did see it. Uh, but moreover than the statement and well before uh, the horrific uh, death of uh, George Floyd uh, was the, I think, the best thing you did in your, in your administration or in, in, in sports law, Sport Lawyers Association, was creating that diversity and inclusion committee and I, I do appreciate being invited to that but I but I noticed how much it meant to you and and your involvement with uh, Nona Lee uh, the, the past president before you African-American woman uh, you know we, we, we connected because she uh, she went to college at the Oklahoma City University where my daughter just graduated and a great athlete in her own right and a hell of a uh, an executive uh, in baseball and, and at, at SLA but the two of you guys coming together and, and bringing that committee in and not just beyond words was coming up with a philosophy first and then going out to um, invite uh, more people from diverse backgrounds into being involved. And look, I mean, whether we intended it to happen or not, um, you know, in the legal profession, um, you know, like most other professions, it's dominated by white men, right? And uh, the fact that uh, the sports industry um, is dominated by multitudes of people from various backgrounds, but yet you see less in coaches and less in the front offices. The fact that you did that um, and Nona did that in, in your two ten years was, was an outstanding thing to do. Uh, what, a, what, a great, what a great effort and, and way to see that through and be more than words. Because right now, the whole thing with, uh, with what's going on is the largest civil rights, by, uh, by, largest civil rights protests in the world right now um, the more you look at it and you peel back the onion, the tougher this, this issue is, right? I mean, it's, it's not oh, yeah. just merely 
uh, racism. It's, it's institutional mass incarceration um, that is, you know, folks working for corporations to make things for very little money. That's how America is manufacturing is on the backs of our prisoners. And that's just modern day slavery, right? I mean, and, and if you look too hard, this becomes a really, really tough issue and a really tough issue to solve, but it absolutely has to be taken on head on. And so kudos to you guys to, to look at it within our industry. And, 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 and I, and I, I got to tell you, I love what Drew Brees just did, right? I mean, Drew Brees, um, you know, said something a lot of people were thinking, hey, this is about the flag. And his teammates stood up and said, wait a second, man, this, this isn't it. And the fact that he um, not only retracted it, made a statement to his, his teammates who are African-Americans in a city that he plays in, which is predominantly African-American, um, you know, he, he said, look, I'm not too big to apologize. I can be wrong right? And then when he did that, then, you know, the president got up and a lot of people are saying, no, you're right. You're right. Right. You're bending. He goes, look, this isn't right. I can, I can change my mind. And, and I think that is where we need to go as a country. We can be wrong and then we can be right. The finish line is where you end up, not where you started. And we have a lot of people playing gotcha on where somebody said something or did something in the past. And I think if we get to the point of, okay, let's understand, let's listen to each other. Let's find solutions. Let's look at the hard things and solve them together. It's a lot better than saying you're bad, I'm good, and then just going through that cyclical thing. Um, so, you know, I, I think this is a really good topic you brought up, and, uh, and, and kudos to what, what you're, um, you know, you, you're, you're doing from your point. Well, thank you. Look, we had always, the, the, the background is, is basically we had always thought as an organization that, you know, we had, all kinds of members we thought we were representative we you know sort of looked at conferences which is basically what we did and you know what is this panel is you know do we need some diverse interests some diverse speakers um, and then last year a member of the SLA sent us a note saying complete lack of diversity in your program reason not yelling it was a great email that Nona got she sent to me uh, and we immediately started getting into it. We talked about it and, uh, we had never had a diversity and inclusion committee. And I said that one of the first things I wanted to do was establish a standing diversity and inclusion committee and in the many committees, of the SLA. And literally, as I said it, I just, the emails and texts from the board members saying, I want to be in, I want to be in, I want to be, in, I want to be in. And it's, it's been great. And sometimes, you know, when somebody raises their hand and asks a question, you can't say, no, you're wrong. You have to do as we did and say, well, thank you for bringing that to our attention. We can make a change. Fantastic. And I think we're on our road to doing that. Yeah. And it's, uh, as I've often discussed, diversity and inclusion, not just in our organization, but it's something that needs to be sort of an umbrella over most organizations because we, there are two things. And I, if I get too political, you can edit this out, but there are sort of, oh, man. there are sort of two things I think that are, um, that are really important when you're talking about, um, you know, the rights of people and, and how you're dealing with, you know, the inclusiveness of people and whatnot. So, 
I, I think that you have to, you have to understand that there's lots of perspectives, mm -hmm. right? People have a lot of different beliefs and you should allow people short of yelling fire in a theater to express their opinions. Right. That's what, that's what you're, that's how do you learn? Be challenged. I want to be challenged. Um, and when somebody says something wrong, you know, somebody says the sky's purple, I'm going to go, yo, blue the last time I looked, but let's talk about this. I think that, um, we, we, we live in a world and, and I hate to say this, but People always thought, oh, we had the Civil Rights Act, we had the Voting Rights Act, you know, we have achieved, you know, some sort of racial neutral country. Um, no. Racism has never not existed in the U.S. It is one of the few things that social media and the ever-present phone has brought us, mm -hmm. which is the ability for people to see the inherent racism in our country laid bare. Yep. And it's ugly and it's horrible. Mm -hmm. But until people really see it and realize it's not isolated is when I think you can have the sea change that even at the SLA we're trying to have in our efforts of diversity and inclusion. But it's more importantly in saying we have become more aware of the institutionalized racism in our country and around the world. So, you know, people want to point fingers at other countries, look in the mirror. We have work to do, and I think it's incumbent upon our organization, and I think it's incumbent upon everybody in our society to take a look and say, how do we solve this? How do we offer not just, you know, a job at a company, how do we develop leaders? So in the same way with your discussion about, you know, bringing in people, you know, from India and China into the tech space, you know, we've made a little start by starting to emphasize STEM for females in our society. Oh, absolutely. But we need to elevate that, that STEM is like reading, writing, arithmetic. You know, that should be part of the lingua franca of our times. Mm. And again, it's a process, we have to push it, but we can't pretend it doesn't exist. You have to look across the fabric of society, look how and when people get incarcerated and don't say they get incarcerated because that's just how they are. That phrase needs to be taken out of our, our language. Yeah. We need to solve problems. And, you know, I read a really interesting article in the New Yorker recently. I don't want to get too deep into it, but the specter of slavery has not left our country. And it's a sad, sad thing. And unfortunately, you know, Nobel Prize winner Milton Friedman in his great 1984 article made it very clear, capitalism's not about distribution of wealth. It's about the accumulation of wealth. So in its purest sense, capitalism needs slavery or something akin to slavery because you don't want to distribute the wealth, you want to grow it and keep it, but not have it there. 
we need as a world to finally move beyond that. And it's a big, it's a big question, but it's a question of our, for our times. And I think to deny that's the reality uh, certainly does not, to my mind's eye, um, is, does not serve my role as an officer of the court. As an officer of the court believing in, you know, equal protection of the laws and a bunch of other things, I think all of us lawyers have to fight for those kinds of things. It's more than just, you know, you know, settling a PI case, drafting a real estate transaction, filing a civil rights case. It's broader, much broader, but it's part of the role we have as lawyers in our society. I've got a, uh, a, a dream <laughs> that I'd like to see um, in that regard, and it'd be really cool on how to, how to address some of these things. Well, one of the biggest problems is the lack of education, lack of funding into education in the areas, and then you, you make it easy to no chances, easy to break laws, laws are broken, and you can just facilitate this thing. Well, what, what I noticed when I went to India, um, I, I didn't know why there were so many Indians doing tech. I just didn't. I knew that there were. I just didn't know why till I went there, and I, I asked a lot of questions. It's really quite fascinating, it, and it's not that it's not that old. And it all started with kind of uh, um, one part of India, uh, you know, southern India, where Hyderabad and Chennai is, um, in uh, in a state called Telangana, um, which is now its own state. It used to be part of uh, um, another state, and it broke off um, because of the, uh, the the governor of that state saw Y2K coming, right, and he really pushed for uh, people to get educated. And I mean, there are universities everywhere, all teaching computer coding, right? And uh, that's why they did this. And, and they came to America in large numbers, either on the H-1B visa or coming to college to, to work on the Y2K problem, right? And whether they fixed the Y2K problem or the Y2K problem wasn't there, what they did is they had a country of a billion people and a lot of them in poverty, all learned how to code. And then they came over to America where there was a lot of jobs because of this Y2K problem that has then, you know, has built up our, our tech industry. What I was really interesting, I was talking to a massive uh, H1B uh, utilizer in one of the largest companies in the world. And um, I discovered, and I didn't know this, how many jobs they created for Americans. And they have a massive number of programs to do that. So what we really should be doing is teaching in the inner cities how to code right? Because those are really, really well-paying jobs. We don't have enough of them in America. There are a lot of them are in cities. And now that with post-COVID, people working from wherever, right? What a great thing to teach in prisons. What a great way to give people skill sets that are immediately valuable and, and do those sort of things. Well, why, why do we have to teach people coming out of jail or prisons to do the menial things? Why don't we just teach them these things we really need and we can stay atop of this thing? Now, I don't know if we get there, but you know what? That would be a great partnership, right? Between government and companies, right? Companies, you teach these folks these skill sets and we'll fund that, right? Then you're not dealing with a welfare state. You're incentivizing people. You're getting more people educated. Those are the sort of creative solutions that I think can really help jump there. Because at the end of the day, it's not going to be, hey, we're sorry. And here's some money. It's got to be, here's opportunity. Here's how you can have a slice of the American pie. And it has to be something and it has to be big. And to me, that, that makes a lot of sense, but I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens out of this. Look, going back to my discussion about equations, 
teaching, you know, STEM sorts of things and actual related skills to students is one thing, but that's, that's, that's sort of the end. You got to go back and figure out how you get there. And that equation is you can't have underfunded, underperforming schools, yeah. schools so right. that kids aren't learning how to read. I mean, if you don't know Show how to up. read and you don't learn later on critical thinking and you don't learn basic arithmetic, you can't learn. If you don't have basic arithmetic and you don't learn fractions, you can't get algebra. If you don't have algebra, you ain't going to learn anything else. And, and that, none of that is going to make sense to you. If, so, if your community says, if you learn to read and write and you graduate high school and in your community, you can work at McDonald's, um, as opposed to let's teach you this skill set, which is going to lead you into, you know, six figure jobs. I mean, it, it, doesn't that really, that opportunity, something that could um, give so much more light? Um, you know what I mean? I, I, I agree that everybody needs to read and write. But, it, but if there is a, if there's a something to run to, right, something to aspire to that isn't my choice between being in a gang or working minimum wage. And, and un unfortunately, you know, that's what happens in a lot of those, those uh, neighborhoods. And, you know, how else do we, how else do we do this? I think so we've got, we're just going to have to get creative, right? I don't think we just well, we keep have doing to get, what we do. You have to get creative and you have to have, you know, in public education, you need a sufficient tax base. Sure. So if you have a world where you keep giving all these tax benefits and the companies don't they take don't those tax benefits for reinvestment, right. but only use them to buy back shares and increase share value, that doesn't serve communities. It only, just, it only serves a limited number of people in society. And, you know, Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm old fashioned, but I think we reaching out a helping hand, making the world a better place, um, you know, healing the world. Uh, the expression in Judaism of tikkun olam. Unless you do that, you're sort of missing the mark because when we are lucky enough, you know, lawyers, we're an interesting class of people because lawyers are always taught that, you know, you do your work, but give back something to your industry, to your community, something that you give of your knowledge and experience yeah. free, pro bono work. The pro bono stuff, yep. And I think that concept of pro bono work needs to be spread out through all of society, not just, you know, by industry, because that will help, you know, if you elevate some, you elevate all. There's and, a you know, we may not fix the problems of the world, but I think if, if organizations like mine can shine a light on those issues so that there's discussion and people try to figure out ways to solve problems, it's much better than those who stand put going, well, that's just the way it is because that's just the way it is, is not part of my vocabulary. I'm with you, man. I, I, you know, and, and to keep pushing on what I'm saying, what if instead of, you know, really big tech companies, uh, you know, naming rights to the computer science department at their alma mater, they built a computer science department at an inner city high school, right? And, and they, and there were internships available, um, you know, for those kids coming out of that. And maybe 
to get these massive tax breaks that they got that this is what they had to do to do that, right? I mean, there, there's things that can be done from incentivizing from our government to inspire our corporations that are doing so well uh, to, to give back to the bottom level uh, to, to raise it up. That would be a great thing to come out of this. Um, it's really easy to, to be angry right now, and, it, and it's righteous to be angry right now. But I think once the anger subsides a little bit, we got to find solutions, right? And, and, and those solutions are going to be tough, and, and uh, they're going to have to be different. Uh, because it's like, again, it's just like in sports. You know, American League adopted the designated hitter rule. So all of a sudden, the American League managers had to manage differently. They had to figure out a new way to solve the problem because the pitcher, we weren't going to get that relatively easy out every year. Right. How did you yeah, restructure? Um, I don't know if you're, you might have caught the tail end of, of, uh, of the law in our sport where in a lineup, you couldn't lift jumpers. Oh, God, yeah. And then yeah. all of a sudden, they developed the lifting of jumpers, which – for the position that you and I played was the greatest thing that ever happened in the history of the, the sport. The tapping second row is one of the most dangerous things uh, ever, right? Yes, I've had that conversation many times, but <laughs> you, you make something better, you change rules, and you have to adapt to those rules. Right. So, you know, and, and what do you want? You know, a lot of sports, they want more scoring. Well, in our country, in our economy, I want more people with ball in hand and the ability to score. And we've got to allow them onto the playground. We've got to let them into the playing field and we've got to give them the opportunity. But if you don't have the most basic elements of, of just a reasonable basic education, you can't get to that next step. Yeah. And you are left with a bullshit high school degree and working at McDonald's. And that shouldn't be what the American yeah. dream is about there may be people who nothing against it there may be people who that's you know they're a lot in life and they're like you know i have a job i work at mcdonald's it's a great company to work for i'm really happy that's great but if they have dreams there ought to be an ability to move on and if they can't move on because the public school they went to in their committee community was so underserved that they didn't have those basic skills to allow them, right. then that's shame on you, America. Yeah, we gotta change the dynamic of not just having property taxes in the neighborhood be the way to base how you, how you pay for a school. We've gotta figure out a better model than that. Yeah. Well, Bobby, this has been great. Um, I think we should probably wrap it up, but what a great conversation. Um, well, thank you, John. Great job in your uh, tenure as Sports Lawyers Association president and uh, excellent work and what you've done in, uh, in the television industry and the sports industry and now in eSports and some really great things that, that you're doing and uh, keep up that great work. And thanks so much for uh, coming to our show, Conversations in Immigration. Um, I'm John Veely, uh, CEO of Online Visas, and we're delivering dreams one visa at a time. Take care, everybody.